Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. How's it going, everybody? We have a great show today. We are going to be uh, talking to the founder of the Afterlife Awareness Conference, and pretty excited about that because we have had some guests on already who are actually going to be at this conference and teaching, but we're speaking to the founder today, Terry Daniel. She is a clinical chaplain, ordained interfaith minister, and end-of-life educator certified in death, dying, and bereavement by the Association of Death Education and Counseling. The focus of her work is to assist dying and grieving individuals to discover a more spiritually spacious understanding of death and beyond. Terry conducts workshops throughout the U.S. to help the dying and the bereaved find healing through meditative, ceremonial, and therapeutic processes that focus on inner transformation rather than external events. Her work is acclaimed by physicians, hospice workers, grief counselors, and clergy for its pinpoint clarity on the process of dying and grieving and its heartfelt depiction of consciousness beyond the physical body. Her unique form of radical mysticism incorporates elements of Buddhism, shamanism, ancient pagan practices, Gnosticism, and other spiritual traditions to break down limiting beliefs about forgiveness, divine judgment, and negative experience. Terry is also the author of three books on death and the afterlife, and I'd like to welcome her to our show today. Thank you. This is great. Looking forward to it. Yes. Um, we've had the opportunity to talk to some of the presenters that are going to be at the Afterlife Conference um, so far, and we've really enjoyed a lot of the work and uh, read some of the books that they've done. So um, I really wanted to have you on the show to introduce you to our listeners and let you know who you are. So um, so I was wondering if you can kind of start with where your path kind of began, um, you know, with your passion, with life after death, and you know, creating the afterlife conference. And I know that, you know, some of this, uh, comes true to your heart with your son, Danny. It does. It goes way back. Even before that, I was always a mystical kid. I was always interested in, in the mystical world and the spiritual world. And when I was 19, I read the Tibetan book of the dead. And that made more sense to me than anything my culture had ever told me about death, birth, and in between. And from there, it just sort of settled in to my cells as the reality of what happens when we die, that we go to this other world where there's all kinds of activity and all kinds of realms that we explore and go through because we continue our personal growth outside of the body. Um, so that was just always natural to me, and that was always a given. So m- fast forward many, many years, and um, my son Danny died when he was 16 after being severely disabled for half his life. And 30 minutes after he took his last breath, he started talking to me very clearly and in great detail, and he basically said, okay, let's get this party started. I'm on this side, you're on that side. We got work to do. <laughs> so uh, we, we wrote our first book together. And um, because I was a parent who had a child die, I 
encountered this organization for bereaved parents nationally, a big organization around the country. And I wanted to speak at their conference, and they turned me down because they said, we don't talk about spiritual stuff at our conferences, especially after death communication. It upsets a lot of the parents. And I looked very deeply into this and this organization and realized that there was no place where people could go and have a public conversation about this. And that's why I started the Afterlife Conference. And that was in 2010. Um, and we were the first conference to address any of this. And it really came out of the fact that the one big national organization for bereaved parents did not allow any content having to do with anything metaphysical. Wow. Yeah. That's, to me, that's just shocking. I can't even comprehend that. But I, in some ways, I guess that I can, you know, because uh, we were just talking to um, actually Austin Wells. And uh, we were having some of that discussion on that podcast as well to say, you know, that our Western culture really struggles to know how to talk about death. Yes, not just to know how, but if they should talk about death. Right. Um, I just gave a talk the other day in San Francisco to an organization that provides like senior housing for immigrants. And it was just a hoot because they were all from China and they all spoke Chinese. And I had a translator and I was talking to them about talking about death. And they told me they were very hesitant because it's their culture to be quiet and, you know, gentle. And we talked about, do they, these were older people in their 80s, and, you know, do you have advanced directives? And have you talked to your children about planning for your end of life? Now, their children were born here in America, but these people were like old country Chinese who never even learned English. And they all told me, that their children, who would be, you know, in their 50s, are not comfortable talking about death. So the, the old traditional Chinese are very comfortable talking about it. They have beautiful traditions where they have an altar in their house to, the, to their ancestors. And whenever somebody dies, they put their picture on the altar and flowers and fruit. But the kids who were born here, the first generation Americans, have the complete denial and fear of death which they got from being in America. Yeah. And what do you think really um, contributes to people being so afraid to want to talk about death or even think about it? Well, I think it's a, a deep psychological fear of the ego's disappearance, basically. It's like mm -hmm. the root of all neurosis. It's like, I am going to disappear. And this I, whoever I is, it's the ego. It's the identification of the self of, you know, I am a teacher. I am a mother. I am an American. I am a male. I am a female. What all that stuff, which is all third dimensional, you know, physical world stuff. People are terrified of losing those identities. They don't know what they are if they're not a body. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. I actually <laughs> like the way that you put that. It was a great way yeah, to I, explain yeah, that. I, you know, if I don't have a body, what am I? I'm nothing. And so it's that fear of nothingness because they don't realize that they are more than a body. 
and that there's this other aspect of the self that continues. And so without having that, um, it's terrifying to think that you could just be erased from the universe. Right. I've also talked to some people that have a very great faith and belief in an afterlife, yet they are still petrified to die. That's because of the kind of afterlife they believe in. Ah. I mean, other than the scary part, like pain and suffering, let's put that aside for a moment. Everybody's afraid of that. You don't want to be pain. You don't want pain. You don't want to die in a fiery car crash. So that's a given. But... um, People in this culture have been indoctrinated into Judeo-Christian thinking and the idea that there is this one uh, humanoid God in the sky who judges people and has opinions about what you do and that after you die you get judged and you go to hell if you're bad and heaven if you're good. And even people who think that they're beyond that kind of thinking still have that ingrained in them somewhere. And it's it's so deeply ingrained in this culture that that's what they're afraid of. I mean, I've been a hospice worker and a chaplain for a long time, and I've talked to hundreds of people who are dying or grieving, and um, this is where the pain comes from. This is what we call in chaplaincy spiritual pain. It mm. is people who've never really given a, a thought to their spiritual life when facing death are just empty. And um, I, I blame it on bad theology, frankly. And uh, what kind of work have you done just in hospice if you're seeing that with a person that is maybe really hanging on because there is fear? Is there a certain approach or thing that you do in speaking with them, even if they're, um, you know, not conscious per se, but maybe speaking to them through thought form or on the soul level? Is there anything that you have found has been helpful? Absolutely. Um, so let's, I'm going to divide that question into two parts. Like what do you do on the soul level and what do you do on the physical level? Okay. So let's look at the soul level first. So I did a training, same thing Austin Wells did at the four winds society. It's shamanism school, basically of what the Peruvian shamans do with the soul with, as somebody's dying. And there is a process that you can do Uh, called the Great Death Spiral, where you assist the soul to separate from the body. And I've done that with many, many people who are so-called unconscious. Of course, they're not really unconscious. They're actually more conscious than ever because they're outside of their body. And so there are things that you can do. I mean, you know, people who do Reiki will tell you some of their processes, but there's all kinds of meditative and guidance processes that you can do with a person who's dying, whether they're responsive or not. If they're responsive and you can lead them on a guided meditation, that's great if they want to do that. If they're non-responsive, you can just go and talk straight to their soul. And what happens in hospice is that you don't know the person. These people, they're patients. They come into your hospice. You don't know them personally. So you don't know what their spiritual beliefs are, or sometimes you don't know anything about them. They don't have any family. We don't have any records of what they think and what they like. So sometimes you could be doing a soul process with them, and you can see that they don't like it because they'll wince their face and they'll squirm a little bit, and you can see that they're uncomfortable having their soul touched. So you stop. 
immediately when that happens. And there are techniques for this. It takes a lot of learning and training. Right. It's good stuff. Now, um, obviously, you said that you were 19 when you picked up uh, the the Tibetan book for the dead. Um, so you must have gotten involved in some of this stuff, obviously, before your son had passed away. And I was wondering, you know, as a parent who has lost a child, um, do you have any just kind of words of wisdom of how you walk through that process uh, for yourself of grief um, and what you recommend to parents who are going through that? You can't recommend anything to anybody because everybody's experience is so completely unique. And that has to do with so many factors of the relationship to the person who died. Is it your husband? Is it your child? The kind of death, was it expected and anticipated, like from a long illness? Or was it sudden? Did your kid go to school one day and get shot at the school, right? That Was it a suicide? Um, it also has to do with the individual person's psychological constitution. Are you a person who handles conflict well, or are you fearful and, you know, I, I, and not able to like stand up in the face of trouble? I mean, so every, all these little factors come into it. And every, I can't say that a parent should do this or do that because I don't know what all those circumstances are, what kind of person that parent is, what kind of family and social support do they have. All of these things make a difference. And this is why it's so important, I think, for anybody who's doing work with the bereaved to have some good education and training in counseling and psychology, because this stuff makes a big difference. And there's so many people out there practicing what they call grief counseling who don't really know what they're doing. And anyone who says, here's a piece of advice for all grieving people, doesn't know what they're doing. You can never say that. However, what I would say is look at your theological underpinnings. And what that means is if you're a person that believes in a punishing God, your grief experience is going to be much harder because what I see with so many parents is their child died and they're complicating their grief process with the thought, what did I do wrong and why is God punishing me for this? What did I do that God would punish me and take my child? And I've seen parents who've lost all their children, three or four children, all died. And they're just paralyzed in this theological conundrum about why is God punishing me? What did I do? So if I had to pick one thing that I could say to all people, I would say, look at that, because that is something that you can work with to make right. it better. Thank you for that. And, you know, after your son passed, was this um, a shock to you that he was able to communicate to you? Or had you already, you know, been able to communicate on a level with him like that and that this was just something that seemed as it would be natural order uh, to happen when he passed? Yes, to the latter. <laughs> um, he lost his ability to speak about three years before he died because he had this progressively degenerative disorder. And so we were communicating telepathically 
well, I could still talk, but he couldn't talk. And, you know, if you have a child, when you have a baby, babies can't talk to you, but you kind of instinctively know what they're needing and what they're feeling. So it was kind of like that. But I also was doing really heavy spiritual work with a teacher of mine at the time who's a channeler and was bringing me these amazing channeled messages from some guides that she worked with. And they told me that we would be communicating across dimensions and that his life and his death and the communication we would have after his death was part of a pre-birth agreement that we had. And so here we were fulfilling this agreement. So I wasn't surprised at all. I was kind of expecting it. Yeah. Now, that book that you wrote with him, it's called A Swan in Heaven, Conversations Between Two Worlds. And I haven't had a chance actually to read um, any of your three books, but uh, that's kind of the one that we're speaking about right now. And um, I was curious to know what the basis of the book is. What are some of the messages that he was able to communicate with you um, about? Well, that particular book, that was the first one. And it's very personal and vulnerable book because it's me telling my so much of my personal story. My other books really aren't like that. Mm-hmm. And so it starts on the day he died and the day that our communication began. And then he's talking to me. We're having these conversations about our life and everything that happened to us. And a lot of that had to do with the marriage that I was in at the time. And he's explaining to me about how pre-birth agreements work and how everybody that you encounter in your life is a teacher. I mean, this is basic consciousness 101 stuff at this point, but the way he articulated it was so beautiful. And he also explained a lot about what happens when we die. So, um, for example, uh, I'll give you an example from the book. So, If you've worked with the dying and you've seen a lot of people die, you've seen this where their eyes kind of look up to the ceiling, but back behind them. And I noticed he was doing this when he was dying. And I I asked him, what were you looking at? And he told me this beautiful story. He said, "Um, I was like a baby bird coming out of an egg. But the egg was cracking open slowly all by itself at the top. And I was looking up at the egg opening and the light coming in. And when it finally cracked open enough, arms were reaching into the egg to pull me out. And I thought, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And I went and spent hours and hours Googling and reading everything I could about descriptions of what happens when you die. And I've never read this anywhere. So I knew that it was original and I knew that it was coming from him being like a baby bird coming out of an egg and the light coming through the top. So that's the kind of stuff he told me. He also told me, um, and I learned this more when I became a hospice worker afterwards about the way breath changes when you're dying. There's all this different kinds of rhythms that your breath does as you're dying. And he said, what is happening is the breath that you breathe on earth, each weakening breath becomes like a breath of light on the other side. So here on earth, we're breathing air, but symbolically on the other side, we're breathing light. 
what is breath on earth is light in heaven, is the way he said it. I mean, there was no way I could make that stuff up myself. (laughs) No way. I mean, I had never seen a person die before. He's the first person I ever saw die. And so I knew nothing about all this breath and the way the eyes are looking. I learned this all much later. Right. Now, do you feel that he... um this is where I get a little confused with kind of, you know, souls and the afterlife where, you know, do you feel like he still uh, works with you or has his soul moved on to evolve in different ways? Um, both. And the okay. reason it can be both is because remember when we're not in the physical dimension, time and space isn't linear. It's like, you know, right now you're in some one city and I'm in another city and we're talking on a phone line um, there is no line like that. It's hard for people to understand timelessness and nonlinear time. But he can be working with me and moving on and evolving, doing other things at the same time because it's not in contained time space, if that makes sense. So, yes, he's still working with me, of course. You know, everything that happens is kind of co created by the two of us, but also by everybody around us. So you and I having this conversation, he certainly had a hand in, but so did you and all your guides and all your dead people and all our friends in other dimensions and all the energies of everything in the world because it's all connected, which is something that you know he taught me. Do I know what he's doing right now and where he is? Kind of, sort of. It's hard to say. My my old teacher, the channeler, brought me a very strong message from him not long ago, an image uh, that he was sending me of what, you know, what he looks like. Not that he looks like anything, but what he wanted to express to me through an image of what he would look like. And they gave me this term called studious monk. He's He's like a studious monk monk and they laughed they said you know just picture him wearing glasses and a monk's robe so i sort of get little images like that and he you know he communicates with austin wells a lot too they're great buddies and she as you know is a medium and she brings me messages from him all the time and he gave me some direction for uh designing my grief workshop that i teach and that all came from austin so so he's around He's got, he's, he's friends with my friends and the lines are open. (laughs) All right. (laughs) That's wonderful. Well, and, um, I know that the afterlife conference is coming up in November of 2018 and our listeners will get a chance to hear this uh, podcast way before. So I am hoping that some of our listeners are going to either hop on a plane and head on down there, but I'd like you to tell, um, our listeners a little bit about what the conference is, how it's evolved since, um, 2010 you had said right so this is the eighth year and uh, what people can expect when they go there oh good great question so when when I started out I was all about the after-death communication because I was so steeped in it and I had just written my first book and after-death communication was my whole thing Um, so I was very big on mediums and people telling stories about their communications with their loved ones but at the same time that I was building the conference I had also gone back to school to get a degree in religious studies and pastoral counseling to become a hospice chaplain because I'd been volunteering for hospice for 
a few years at that point, and I wanted to be more than a volunteer. I wanted to be a chaplain, and I wanted to get a really good education in uh, theology and counseling because I had discovered that people were having these big theological issues around death and the afterlife. So I was becoming more educated and more academic, and that was reflected in the way that the conference evolved. So each year I started bringing in more people from the mainstream, not so much the metaphysical woo-woo world. I started reaching out to hospice doctors and academic researchers and religious scholars and people like that. So where it's gone now, and then in the middle of all that, I went to shaman school and developed these wonderful relationships with people like Austin Wells and Linda Fitch and Kitty Edwards. These were my teachers. And so we brought the shamanic piece into the conference as well, because doing ceremonies um, is a very important part of working with dying and working with grief. So what we have now is this huge spectrum where we've got religious scholarship and academic research on one side and shamans journeying to other worlds on the other end of the spectrum and everything in between in the middle. Yeah, you know, it's just, it seems like such, um, like so much work to be done in, in a period of time. How do people like process leaving that world afterwards? You know, you're just so immersed in it with all of the, the wonderful workshops that you have and the discussions. I have to imagine that, you know, there has to be a little bit of processing that's done to you know, come out of that beautiful community and, and all that and then entering back home again. Sometimes that could be a little bit of a shock. It's a big shock. And I love that you asked me that question because we we do a very, very big thing for that purpose. We have a closing ceremony on ah. Sunday that everybody comes to and our shamans lead this ceremony. And um, you can actually see uh, on our website, which is afterlifeconference.com, by the way, um, we have a little, some video footage of it and some pictures. It's just beautiful. And so, for example, what we'll do on Sunday is not everybody comes, but, you know, we'll have like 200 people in a room in a big circle. And in the middle of the circle, we make what is called a despacho. And we'll have like a big white sheet and we, we put rose petals, flowers, herbs, seeds, cornmeal, different kinds of beans, different kinds of things that symbolize work that we've done, our relationship with the elements and the earth, um, grief that we want to let go of, wisdom that we have received, all these symbolic things. And we lay it all out in this beautiful pattern on a sheet and we have a woman named Patty Pellerito, who you would probably like to interview, who does sacred sound with gongs and singing bowls. And she comes with this giant gong and she walks across the room and hits the gong. And it just makes this deep, deep meditative sound that goes right into your heart. And we do this big meditation around this beautiful uh, despacho. And then we wrap it up in a bundle and we do a processional out the door to depending where we are, like in Portland, we've been there twice, we're right on a river and we throw the thing into the river. We 
take the sheet and shake it out and all the flowers and the beans and the cornmeal goes into the river so that we've given our prayers and we've given our work, you know, to spirit and the water transforms it. Sometimes we burn it. We do different things with it. So that's how we ease people back into the world. Great. That's wonderful. You you can't just send them home. You just can't. No, I know. (laughs) Just no way. I'm just thinking people would be walking around like, ah, you know. Um, So you so you have a bunch of people who are teaching, giving workshops, and then you also have um, a section for people to come to be an exhibitor. So if we do have any listeners that are going to be in Orlando, Florida, November 1st through the 4th or would like to be, what type of exhibitors do you like to have at your conference? Well, we uh, we have people, a lot of them who come back year after year, um, the most popular items. Uh, we have a wonderful guy named Digby Bertram who brings gorgeous jewelry that he makes, that he, he has the crystals and the stones and the gems blessed by John of God in South America. And he makes this, his jewelry, so his stuff's really popular. Clothing. Uh, is very is a very big seller there, and we have a woman who usually comes and sells beautiful kind of spiritual clothes. Um, people come and sell books, um, meditation tools, um, you know, gongs and things, and uh, recordings, meditation recordings. I mean, just I, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, just everything, anything that you think this audience would want most uh, you know if you have a book this is a great place to sell your book um we don't have any professional services like massage therapists or readings nobody is allowed to do that as a vendor the only people who can do paid services on site are are approved mediums and counselors so as an exhibitor you can't do anything like that but you can sell products and you can promote your services but um, yeah, for liability reasons, we we don't have massage there. We can't have anybody do something to somebody physically right. or even spiritually. But the approved people um, are there uh, to give many sessions to the conference participants, if as a paid service. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So um, the general admission ticket, you will see a presentation by every single teacher. That's included with general admission. And if you want to do deeper work with one of those teachers, for example, uh, well, Austin is a good example. So, you know, Austin will give a talk that everybody can go to. And if you want to do deeper work with her, she also does the next day a three-hour workshop, which is interactive and experiential, and you would pay extra for that. Okay. even if you don't buy any of the workshops, you'll still get to see everybody. And hear now, them speak. now, do you have everyone um, that you are looking for to teach workso- workshops? Because I know on the Afterlife Conference website, you have something to submit proposals. And it sounds like you're doing this year after year. So if people didn't quite get in for the 2018, but are you still looking for people um, to not, present on workshops? Not for workshops. Workshops, you know, there's only six of them. So those uh, those go pretty fast. So those okay. are all um, We keep the proposal page up all year round because, you know, we'll, we'll use it for next year. Yeah. Um, of the proposals we get, most, most of the speakers that we have are people that I reach out for, you know, and I say, hey, I choose you 
to be at the conference. And I still need them to send me a proposal just so I can have a description of what they do. But as far as the unsolicited proposals, we probably choose 5% of them. Mm -hmm. And we make it very clear on the website what we want and what we don't want. And I don't think that many of the people who submit proposals actually read those instructions. <laughs> you know. So, you know, so what, what we don't want is someone who's just going to get up there and tell their personal story about their near-death experience or their after-death communication experience. Our audience is kind of past that point, you know, where... Um, it's, it's just we're, we're kind of over the storytelling thing. We're kind of like, yeah, we've heard all the stories, but we want to know what to do about it. Now that we know that this is possible, what do we do? How do we use this in our life? So I'm always looking for more hands-on kind of instructions. Great. Well, wonderful. And again, for our listeners, uh, the website is afterlifeconference.com. And Terry, thank you so much for being a guest. Um, I'm really looking forward to the conference. Um, and it was just great to be able to talk to you and learn more about it um, as well. So thanks again. Oh, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com, to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. You can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Catch you next time.